Welcome to the Upper Left Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Jack Anderson. You can follow me on Instagram at Jack underscore Anderson, I-I-I, where I give you all of my latest nature picks, sometimes some training thoughts, um, and then, of course, all the previews for the great guests that I'm having on the podcast. It's been pretty cool. The podcast has actually been going on for just over a year now. We hit the one-year mark uh, this episode which is pretty cool. We're almost to 50 episodes, something I didn't think would happen when I started this thing. And it's only gotten more and more fun, to be honest with you. Um, The process is something I should probably like go a little more in depth in on an episode on my own at some point, just kind of fill people in who are interested in doing podcasts on some of the things that I've learned. Obviously, this is my, I think, third different podcast I've started since uh, starting my, my career in radio uh, just just after college before making the switch to strength and conditioning. So I feel like at this point, I have a pretty good understanding of uh, the things that work and don't on a podcast. So at some point, I'm going to need to do an episode on that. But thank you very much to all those who have been listening for the past year. Um, for any new listeners that have hopped on board recently as well, thank you so much. It's been really cool to connect and meet and talk to people that is, are listening to the podcast. And then also just to have some of the great guests that I've had on here in the past year as well. It's really been a great learning experience for me hearing from them. And it's taught me a lot about uh, the field and how to kind of further my thought process and and make things a little better uh, for the athletes that I coach. And, uh, you know, today, this today's episode is no different. Uh, Daniel Bach on uh, Jump Science, one of the uh, guys that first got me into sprint mechanics and physics and stuff like that a few years ago just going through his YouTube Uh, so it's kind of surreal now to bring him on and and actually speak to him face to face we had a great conversation about some uh, some things that I was wondering about for my athletes on Instagram the other day and I was like what the hell why not let's get Dan on Uh, which we did here Um, for those that don't know Dan is a uh, Daniel is a performance coach out of Austin Texas and the founder of Jump Science Uh, he's been working in the industry since 2012 uh, but I would honestly say, just given his background, and he talks about it in the show, um, given his background, he's been a student of athletic performance since he was 12 or 13 years old, working on jump training himself. And I think he kind of always knew this was going to be his career path, uh, which is pretty freaking cool. Um, honestly, I'm a huge fan of his approach, and he has a lot of countercultural thoughts on training, particularly strength training and when it might not be the most effective thing in the world. And that's what we start talking about first today. We discuss why strength training exclusively can limit adaptation in some young athletes and how he prefers to fill in other athletic gaps first. Um, Then we dive into talking about the overshoot phenomenon versus supercompensation, the differences between those two uh, theories, um, and then how to be practical in programming for athletes given what we know about those things. Um, This leads to a discussion about negative adaptations and fiber types and how we need to consider those things when writing training programs. And we did a really deep dive on that stuff, and it took up the bulk of the podcast, which is hilarious considering that he's more of a speed and plyo guy, and we spent a lot more time just talking about programming considerations, particularly for youth athletes given their crazy schedules, especially now that the pandemic is, well, I I don't know if it's winding down, but sports are, are up and running regardless, so... Um, since they are, it means that we need to be all the more cautious about what we're programming for these kids as their training loads increase outside of our, our realm. Um, then after that, we shift to speed and discuss max velocity for basketball players and then what metrics and outputs Daniel's tracking in his sprinters and, and other athletes and what he thinks. Um, and then also what he thinks about sprinting and how it should be at the heart of training for most, most athletes. That's something I could certainly vibe with, with. So it was a really fun discussion there. Um, and that's what we wrapped up with. <laughs> All of that, we didn't even discuss jump training, which is, of course, Daniel's bread, bread and butter. Uh, since we missed out on that, make sure you check out his website, jump.science, and his IG of the same name, and he'll get your vert right for show. Um, thanks again to Daniel for hopping on. Uh, this is a terrific deep dive. I really enjoyed our conversation. I'm going to need to get him on again at some point for some plyo talk as well, but this is what we came up with for you uh, this week. Let's get right to it. Daniel, thanks a lot for joining the show, man. Really appreciate appreciate your time. Um very quickly, just for the listeners, um, where are you at right now? Like where, what facility are you working out of? What are you doing specifically? Uh, just kind of fill people in on your background. Yeah. Uh, so I have a, like a basketball background, grew up playing that, um, played one year of D three ball and then, uh, and then ended up needing to get a job instead. So not, not, not a huge, like, um, 
not a big basketball career necessarily, but uh, when I was 13, I actually got into jump training, um, started dunking on a low hoop in the driveway and squatting down in my, in my basement. And, uh, you know, adolescents can see some pretty, uh, pretty uh, dramatic results. So I, you know, I gained maybe 10, 12 inches on my vertical in a year. And uh, in eighth grade, I dunked. And so when I was 14, I was already kind of hooked on the training process um, and continued to try to develop that. And, you know, throughout high school basketball, I was like, you know, a guy who could jump high and stuff like that because I had worked on it a bunch. Um, When I decided not to play another year of college basketball, I started jump training again um, or like, you know, more dedicated to it since I wasn't in basketball anymore. And uh, that's when I, you know, I got my vertical like up into the low 40s with an approach and um, and then started working with some other people, like some just some friends of mine and ended up with like this little jump squad on campus uh, at uh, this is at University of Wisconsin Lacrosse. And um, and I was also getting an exercise science degree at the time. So, yeah, I got got a degree, but then also was like training people throughout college. And uh, so really. Yeah, I got some good experience. I wasn't really, you know, I wasn't working for anybody or anything. And I wasn't really, you know, I wasn't volunteering in the weight room or anything. I was just doing my own thing. Um, so I learned a lot that way because it was, you know, it was a lot more than just like cleaning weights up and stuff like that. I was actually programming for people and things like that. Um, somewhere along the, uh, the line, I started posting YouTube videos of the training and then you know, people started asking me questions and stuff. Cause I, you know, I got some results with some of the people I was training. And so people asked me questions. I started making little blog posts, like making little programs for people, you know, and it just kind of evolved over time into this jump science brand um, with, you know, the informational website and all that. Um, so that's, that's, you know, a significant part of what I do now is the, the online space. Um, but then after college, I got connected with somebody in Austin, Texas uh, through my website, actually. Um, it was somebody who, it was actually just a dad who um, used some information for his kid. <laughs> and then he started talking to me via email. So anyway, he told me I should come check out this place called Acceleration, which is in the Austin area. Uh, so I came down here and I met the owner there. And uh, a few weeks later, he offered me a job. So I moved here in 2014 and I've been working at this place, Acceleration, since then. Um, and it is a, it's, you know, private sector. We do a uh, almost exclusively one-on-one training uh, with like middle school through college athletes. Uh, we actually, there's a couple of NFL guys uh, sometimes too. Um, and yeah, so it's a variety of sports. I have um, coming in with the jump training background, you know, I was kind of like volleyball, basketball guy, but then I also had um Later in college, I'd started working with some track athletes and that had kind of become actually my favorite sport to train people for, um, just because it is dedicated to athleticism, you know? Um, so then, yeah, I guess I got more into, I kind of became like the track guy at acceleration. Uh, so now, yeah, I have like the speed and jump training, both sides of it. Um, and yeah, you know, it's everybody from a college sprinter to like a seventh grade lacrosse player, you know, so it's a wide variety of athletes, different levels. Um, but uh, yeah, I love it. I love solving the individual individual puzzle for each person and, uh, you know, seeing the, their growth and, you know, impacting their career in sports. So uh, yeah, it's a good, good setup over there. Yeah, that's, that's really awesome. So you've been there seven years now. So I imagine you've had some athletes for like an extended period of time. Yes. Seen them develop. So I guess maybe in a more specific manner, have there been certain ones? So I work a lot with amateur athletes where, where I'm at right now as well. This is my yeah. first year. So it's still pretty early on in the game, but mm-hmm. um, what is it like taking someone that you're like, Oh, this kid maybe has some potential. I don't know how serious they are about this. And then seeing that process develop where all of a sudden they become like a finely tuned solid athlete. And you've been along for the whole part of the ride. Like that must be a very interesting perspective. Yeah, it, it's very rewarding for sure. Um, when it goes well, uh, there's certainly <laughs> true. <you> know, <laughs> there's certainly the um, ambitious seventh grader who, um, by you know, by sophomore year of high school, they don't even like their sport anymore, or you know, things of that nature. Um, 
one of the other unfortunate realities is, you know, it is an expensive product. And so sometimes people train for a little bit and then they decide they don't want to keep doing it. Um, I've got a girl right now who's, uh, yeah, an eighth grader who has done like spectacularly in, in speed since, uh, since like last fall. Um, but now she's like, her parents are, <laughs> you know, one of them wants to keep doing it. Another one is not as, not as enthusiastic. Uh, so I don't, you know, I don't know, but so I think she has a bright future in track and field, um, with my guidance, without my guidance, I don't know if the system's really going to get the job yeah. done for her. Yeah. Um, but yeah, certainly, certainly there are some that, you know, you see just that gradual, gradual building over time. A lot, a lot of times it's, um, you know, you may not think of them as being like a division one prospect when they're in eighth grade, but then over time, if, you know, when they're dedicated and they keep putting that work in and, uh, and you just, you know, you make those little adjustments to the process that, that make the difference. Um, yeah, it's very, it's rewarding. And it also teaches you a lot, I would say. Um, yeah, you kind of learn, you learn a lot of things about, you know, those, those little details that make the difference. Like, oh, we got this person to start eating better when they're in eighth, eighth grade, you know? um or eating enough anyway uh yeah and, just and, that sometimes geez yes <laughs> yeah. yes or yeah we we've started addressing this you know lack of quadricep strength early on and so then you know a middle schooler with knee pain turns into somebody who can like jump pain-free when they're old you know when they're a junior in high school and it's so it's just yeah you get to see those uh you get to see that impact over time it's uh it's yeah it's, it's good it's very fun i love my job will you um just to kind of stay on this topic, let's say you get someone around that age, like 12, 13, 14, something like that. When they come to you, I think that the general of thumb is like strength training is going to work for them in terms of like be one of the lower hanging fruits. that's going to cause some adaptation. Do you find that to be kind of, I hate to say universal because everyone is different, but like, do you find that generally to be a good way to go about things? Or have you like moved away from maybe that like commonly held belief in some cases? Um, yeah, I would say I definitely have some pushback on that on that philosophy. Um, reason being, you know, what I've found is strength training works really easily if you have a talented untrained athlete um, who has like a good athletic background. Um, if you have somebody who's coming in less explosively talented, maybe not as much of a extensive athletic background, um, I think they need to develop that specific ability first. Um, Cause yeah, I've, you know, I, I've had the talented kid who's already fast and then you add some strength and they get faster and it's just like, Oh yeah, I'm a genius, you know? Um, <laughs> but I've also, I've also had the less talented, maybe has like played more video games than, than sprinted, you know? And, uh, and then if you just add strength to that kid, even, even, yeah, 12, 13 years old, it doesn't necessarily transfer really well. Um, yeah, I think general strength training works when you have the specific ability for your sport developed. Um, when that's lacking, then the transfer is actually pretty difficult. So, yeah, I definitely have some pushback on that. Like strength training is the, the beginner way of getting the low-hanging fruit. It's like, well, no. It, it works when they have the 15 years of playing sports <laughs> in their background and they have some genetic talent. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So I, I actually prioritize, I mean, it, it depends what all the kid has going on. Cause For sure. yeah, in, in Texas, I mean, the, their sport participation is really high. And then when kids aren't in sports, they're in off season, which is like random running and weightlifting workouts <laughs> yeah, um yeah so it, it depends on what they're doing but uh i actually try to fill in the athletic gaps first like oh so you play basketball but you don't sprint ever okay well we're gonna sprint and that's our first priority um or okay you play volleyball but you don't sprint or okay you play volleyball which means you jump the exact same way a thousand times every week but I ask you to, you know, jump off one leg and you physically like can't, <laughs> can't figure out it. how to yeah. do it. It's like, <laughs> I'm, I want to fill, fill in that gap. Uh, let's develop that coordination. Let's develop, you know, elasticity, like something that volleyball players just by jumping off two legs, a lot of times don't have naturally. Um, so yeah, let's sprint, let's hop, let's do different plyometrics where you're fast off the ground. So yeah, I actually try to fill in those, like cover those athletic bases first. So does then, that, does that mean you just go, 
just do those things or will you throw in a little bit of weight training and make it kind no. of current? So, yeah, so I'll, I'll strength train, but it's, it's not like, you know, that makes up 75% of what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Um, it'll be, yeah, it might be 20 minutes out of the 60 that I see a kid. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then I also, I definitely think like, uh, I try to gravitate towards, well, again, it's with the athletes where I I think that they need to develop those specific athletic qualities. Um, I gravitate more towards what I would call non-disruptive strength training. Okay. Meaning, uh, you know, not deep squats, but like box squats instead, maybe just, yeah, like a, uh, deadlift versus a, uh, full range of motion split squat. Um, yeah, things of that nature, or maybe even like, okay, it's just an isometric hold rather than, um, you know, like a hard split squat. That's going to create a bunch of structural adaptation that may be nonspecific. Um, so yeah, I tend to, it's kind of backwards, I guess, but it's no, almost but like a little I, bit more specific strength training yeah. for the beginners, but it's because they don't have the specific sprint and jump ability to start with. Um, and I, yeah, I really think that needs to be in place first before like strength training really, really transfers well. Yeah. I think that's, I think this is a really interesting point. And then you mentioned there, like you want to avoid stimuluses that cause certain structural adaptations, you just said. So right. Like, like, like negative adaptations. Yeah. yeah. So what, what, what would those be in your eyes? Like if you do kind of like take that strength training first approach with some of these athletes. So, um, it's tough because I'm not able to like, uh, hard to quantify, right? Yeah. Quantify their, (laughs) their muscle architecture, you know? Um, but I think in theory, it would be things like, uh, are we shifting their angle of peak torque to be at too, too deep of a range of motion? If they start, you know, if they start squatting in sixth grade, um, are we, are we reducing elasticity at all? If we are, you know, doing, yeah, like structural development, strength training, um, more than we are sprinting and jumping. Um, but yeah, I don't, you know, I'm not measuring fascicle length. <laughs> um, I'm not measuring angle of peak torque. I'm not in a biomechanics lab, Yeah, yeah. but, but so for sure, I would say it's the, um, the football players are the ones where I say, okay, that's the scenario I'm trying to avoid. Cause I see the football players who, even if they are talented, they start squatting two, three, four times a week in seventh grade. And by the time they're sophomores, they're probably good athletes. Um, but they're also probably, you know, the, the stronger ones will be over a double body weight squat already as sophomores. And then, and then, but like maybe more just like normal in the speed department. And I'm looking at that situation and I'm thinking, okay, if they just go from, 2.2 to 2.7 times body weight in the squat from sophomore to senior year. Um, but they're at, you know, at, at the 2.2, they're, they're sprinting the 40 and 5.2, you know, is that, is that other going from 2.2 to 2.7 going to get them down yeah, to four what's, seven? What's that doing? Yeah. That's not filling in that gap at all. Yeah. yeah. I completely agree with that. Yeah. yeah 100%. Like, so, so I, yeah, I want to see somebody, sprinting five, two in the 40, when they squat, you know, 1.3 times body weight. <laughs> yeah. Not, not when they squat over double. Yeah. <laughs> I think, yeah. you know, so without being able to measure the specific adaptations, I would say I still see it in the football population a lot. Um, and when you so, talk yeah, about like the peak torque and all that stuff, do you mean like, yeah. I, when you, when you talk about that stuff, I almost think like you're talking about like eliminating stretch shortening, right. Or not relying on those types of things. Uh, because we spend so much time going through like full range of motion in these, these heavily loaded compound exercises. Right. I, I don't, I don't know about eliminating stretch shortening. Um, there might've been a, you know, a big leap on my part. I'm just kind of trying okay. to get it. <laughs> um, yeah. Like the angle of peak torque, you know, when you lengthen uh, or when you do full range of motion strength training, you get longer fascicle length. Mm-hmm which is a good, a good adaptation generally. Mm -hmm. Um, but you also start to shift the, the angle of peak torque towards longer muscle lengths. Um, so that, you know, maybe that means does, or does that mean that we get a little bit less force at shallow knee bend 
which is which is that. where you want to be in athleticism. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's all it's all like it's all theoretical again because I don't have the you know I yeah. don't have the measurements. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely see that that separation between the strength and the athleticism when people overlift. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've and I've seen, yeah. I mean, I've worked with plenty of football players where it's like, yeah, like I said, they're in a situation where their strength is more developed than their speed. And I'm and I'm looking at it like, okay, and you you're not going to get out of football lifting anytime soon. <laughs> yeah. And so I don't know <laughs> really if I can influence your speed all that much without with that stimulus still there. Even if we do technique, even if we do more sprinting reps, if if that's necessary, even you know you'll have guys who run track season, um, like football players who do track season, but they're lifting in the morning the whole time um, doing their football lifting plus like punishment work. So, uh, <laughs> and so they can go through a track season and not develop any speed. Good to see know? Texas high school football is no different than California's. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> it's quite the, quite the beast. Um, so yeah, in terms of the adaptations, I mean, I can look at research and I can theorize what might be happening, but I'm not taking those measurements. So it's, it's hard to like make real hard claims about it. No, but I, you know, I'm kind of on board with you. Like, I think last year, probably even more so where I was like, ah, we just shouldn't really like lift it all in some cases. And now like given where I work and everything, like I've kind of swung back a little more to the middle, but I completely agree with you. you Some athletes and you're like, this is probably not what you need right now. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And it's not, I know we have like the, the strong enough topic, right. But it's not always because they're strong enough. It's because it's it's more so looking at what is more developed than the other. You yeah, know, I think so, yeah. I think somebody can. Let's say it's just a, a modest, like a one and a half times body weight squat. Somebody could have a one and a half times body weight squat and still be more strength developed than speed developed, and then not get much transfer from their strength. Yeah, you know, yeah. I firmly believe that. Um, so it's almost whereas, like when you look at these when you look at these like research papers where everyone's trying to find the optimal percentage of body weight squat it's almost like you're chasing nothing it, like based yeah. on the way you're thinking yeah <laughs> yeah it's it's all about the 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 person in front of you and like you know all their individual characteristics so yeah because um right so like i just said you know one and a half body weight squat maybe you don't get transferred if you don't have that specific athletic ability you know that background there in place whereas you know maybe some of these talented college football players uh, who, you know, maybe they go into college with a four five forty, and then they obviously develop their strength and power a bunch and they come out of college with a four three forty, you know, and they might get transferred from, you know, 2.4 to three times body weight. Whereas somebody else isn't getting transferred from 1.5 to two, you know, cause they don't have those explosive genetics and explosive yeah. background to, to get that transfer. So, yeah, I really don't think it's about a certain level that's strong enough. It's really about, you know, how, what abilities do you have developed relative to your strength? You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I, don't, I haven't heard a lot of people talk sort of, you know, at this strength level, you should be able to do this athletically, but that's kind of a way that I think. Yeah. Um, like in my, in my jump science program, it's uh, you know, where is your squat and then where is your running vertical? How do those compare? And that's sort of how we, you know, that, in the little like evaluation or classification process it's uh it's comparing those things it's not just assuming oh you only squat one and a half times body weight you definitely will benefit from getting stronger it's actually no you squat one and a half times body weight you should be jumping at least uh like 0.45 times your height with an approach yeah so it's it's seeing how things are relative to each other rather than just squat relative to body weight is the only thing that you know the only indicator so that's, that's pretty interesting stuff. So I guess it kind of transfers into like the main topic I want to discuss with you, which is the overshoot phenomenon. Um, okay. If you want, like just for the listeners, if you want to just briefly kind of give a brief overview of the thought process behind that um, and then kind of dive into like maybe some of your findings uh, by pulling some of these kids away from what we just talked about and bias them more towards filling in these athletic gaps. Yeah. Okay. So just, just to clarify, um, when you say the overshoot ph- phenomenon, I mean, that is specifically the fast twitch fiber overshoot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm assuming that we're talking about like super compensation in general though as well. Yes, we can, let's let's tie the two together for sure. Yeah, yeah. okay. So um, 
So the overshoot phenomenon is uh, an increase in fast twitch fibers that happens when people rest. Um, and so that that's a specific physiological thing that has been measured. Um, super compensation. And I know you know this stuff, I'm, you know, for the listeners. Oh, this is fine. No, this is great. Yeah. Yeah. I, I want to hear the way you're presenting it too, just yeah. the conversation more clear. So for sure. Yep. Um, super compensation refers more to, you know, a holistic look at performance, such as like a, a, a speed or a jumping ability. And, uh, and the decrease that happens when you train hard and then the subsequent increase that happens when you train a lot easier. So the overshoot phenomenon, you know, might play a role in super compensation, but the two are not the same thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. I've had a lot of people who have like, you know, they've read the article on my site and then they say, Hey, I want to stop lifting to try to get the overshoot phenomenon. And I'm like, okay, well, the overshoot phenomenon refers to when people stop training altogether, <laughs> you know, they go yeah. back to being, they go back to being sedentary. So, it, you know, you're not necessarily trying to do that so much as you're trying to get super compensation. Um, but so anyway, uh, the approach, you know, what we learned from the research with the fast twitch fibers is basically that resting makes you more fast twitch. Um, people who are paralyzed actually shift to completely fast twitch over time. Um, and then uh, also like your, your activity based on how much endurance your activity requires, you're going to shift more slow twitch. Um, so obviously, you know, endurance athletes shift to being very slow twitch over time. Um, weightlifters, you know, they, their fastest fibers actually shift down to being the, the like semi-fast fibers. And then their, uh, their slow twitch fibers will shift up towards being like those semi-fast fibers as well. So you just end up in the middle. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, but on the faster twitch end at yeah. least. Yeah. And then, and then, uh, sprinters have like the most fast twitch. Um, so what we, you know, practically speaking, I don't go around saying, Hey, you should not exercise for the next two months <laughs> yeah, yeah, so that you can get the most, uh, most possible two X fibers. Right. Um, that's not a, a good training strategy, obviously. Um, but it's more about the principle of, okay, if we can, one, if we can do less and two, if we can be more explosive and less endurance focused, we're going to get some, some fast twitch benefits from that. Like at least a shift. And again, I'm not taking muscle biopsies on athletes, <laughs> so I don't have data on that. You know, this is more like interpreting the research and, and then kind of trying to apply it in a 100%. more practical situation rather than, um, again, yeah, I'm not, okay, let's train for two months and then not train for two months. You know, we're not, we're not doing that. Like we're not recreating the research protocol. Um, so yeah, it's more about this principle of not overtraining and then trying to shift towards being, you know, very explosive focused at some point to, uh, to maximize that, that, uh, the fiber twitch speed, you know, um, then super compensation, you know, that's, that's more about, it's not necessarily about a specific type of training so much. It is about training a lot and then training less. Um, so, you know, so you get super compensation just from, let's say it, like, uh, running training. Like if you're training for a 5k and you run a bunch and then you run less, you know, you get, you bounce back from the fatigue and you get super compensation. Mm -hmm. um, so that's not necessarily, you know, or, or even like just the general adaptation syndrome, right? The gas, as they call it, is you, you get worse before you get better, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, and that would, again, you know, weightlifting, you train a lot, you lift a lot, and then you lift less to peak. You know, that's a, that's a sort of a general principle. Um, of course, Verkashansky, when he did super compensation, it was, we're going to do hard strength training. A lot of it, we're going to intentionally fatigue people and lower their performance. And then we're going to stop. And then we're going to see an increase in performance. Yeah. Um, and, but so he was, he, uh, 
well, he actually, I think the original super compensation story was one of his research participants got pregnant. (laughs) And so she, yeah, that's in one of his books or articles or whatever. And so she had to stop the training and then, but he kept like testing her. I don't know how often or whatever, but so in the weeks following her discovering she was pregnant, her performance shot up because she stopped the training. So then he had the other participants stop the training and then they all shot up. Um, but again, I, you know, I'm not with, in, a, in a practical situation with an athlete. I'm, I'm not saying let's train super hard and, and just cr- and crush just you stop. and then stop. <laughs> um, but it's more about this. Yeah, it's more about the, the principle that you learn from it of, OK, we have been training hard for a while. Let's try to back off. Let's try to get more off days. Let's try to train more easy. And then we're going to see the see the benefits of that. Um, so in terms of, you know, working with an athlete, you know, keeping those two principles in mind that that looks like, OK, let's let's just say it's a sprinter. Um Okay, so we have like our full on track training going. And then we have, you know, let's say two to three strength training sessions per week happening. Um, If we sustain that for a couple months straight, you're you're probably in a position where you're going to benefit from one training less in general and two doing less in the strength department. So maybe that would then mean, okay, we've been doing five days a week on the track, two to three in the weight room. Um, You'll probably benefit from three days on the track and maybe one in the weight room. And then also it would be in the weight room. Are we going to still be doing full range of motion strength training um, heavy, or are we going to shift towards just doing explosive stuff? Um, So, you know, in a situation where I get to control everything, which is super rare. um, (laughs) So rare, man. Yeah, (laughs) I would, I would get, you know, I would like to get pretty extreme in the sense that during the strength training uh, portion, um, I'm going to, I'm going to squat deep. I'm going to split squat deep. um, I'm going to do deep hip hinges. Those are all going to be in there um, along with, you know, cleans maybe or maybe cleans depending on the athlete uh you know deadlifts um pistol squats hamstring work obviously like additional hamstring work on top of hinges but i'm going to strength train pretty hard and very general um and then i would get more uh extreme on the other end of the spectrum as well where okay now we're going to only hang snatch <laughs> Um, to the point where, so yeah, this is like not even really strength training at this point. This is like, uh, you know, it's, it's in the power realm and we're basically just trying to maintain power while we let the, we let the, uh, the sprinting kind of take over. And we also let the, the recovery and the freshness take over. Um, so that would be a situation where I I get to control things, um, in real, uh, realistic situations, it tends to be less extreme, I would say. Um, I might be, you know, I, I may not have the ability to implement uh, the the consistent squat progression that I want during the strength training portion, right? Um, so, so then at at some point it would be like, okay, well, we're just going to kind of take what we have, take what we can get from the strength training that we have done. And then uh, now we're going to, you know, let's say if we're like hitting the competitive track season, um, we're going to try to back off in some sense, but not entirely because I don't, you know, it's not necessarily like we've made all these strength gains and we've also accumulated this fatigue. So I know if we get away from it completely, we're going to shoot way up. You know, I don't necessarily know that. Um, so it might be more like, okay, we're, we're just going to box squat and we're going to do medium weight um, rather than like heavy deep squats. You know, so it might just be a shift like that, or it might be, okay, we're just going to hex bar deadlift and that'll be like our, our strength work. Um, so yeah, it's maybe not as extreme of a shift from one end to the other, but still it's kind of applying that principle of let's train easier. Let's be easier on the body and let's be, you know, let's let the explosive and elastic training like take over here so that we can shift as far in that direction as possible. 
um, yeah, I feel like that was long. No, that's great, dude. No, that's, that's super helpful. And you're like, I, honestly too, like my next question was going to be kind of, you kind of answered it to some extent, but I feel like, so I'll give you like a personal example. So I, did you know, yeah. um, Pat Davidson's mass two program? I, I know of it. I don't. Yeah. Okay. So it's, I'm it's familiar a, with the details. It's a meat grinder. So like, or actually I think it was mass one when I did this. Yeah. It was actually mass one, but, um, yeah. it's a meat grinder. I mean, you just, I'm kind of a meathead. So you literally just run through 16 weeks of four days a week, all the compound lifts you can think of. Like I'm hitting 50 to 60,000, you know, pounds a day. Like, right. It's right. just, it's just Brutal. a gong show. Yeah. It's a gong show. It's just ridiculous. So, you know, I finished that and I, I'd actually done a huge block of sprinting before that. Um, okay. but I, I didn't sprint during this. I was just so shot. And I remember yeah. like easing back into it and everything's different. You know, the feeling, everything feels different. Obviously timing goes away fairly quickly, but like not beyond even the timing, like, like, I, I mean, I gained 15, 20 pounds, like sure, yeah. you know, legs are heavy, like nothing feels good or right about what's going on, you know? Uh-huh. And, um, I remember a buddy of mine at the time he referenced you. This is how I actually found out about you a couple of years ago. He referenced oh, wow. you. Okay. Like, was like, oh, like, you know, you got to think about, you know, overshoot super compensation. He goes, I wouldn't touch weight if I were you for like, you know, three months or something like that. And okay. I think I like, I, I dabbled with a little, I definitely misquoted you based on what you're telling me. Sure, you. sure. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I dabbled with a little bit of, of lifting after that, but very kind of along the, line, which, along the lines of what you're talking about, like much lower volumes, very concentric based, like added some jumping back in, yep. slowly ramped the sprinting back up. And all of a sudden things just felt a lot better, you know, like as timing starts to come back, all that stuff. And I started to kind of think like, um, you know, have we got it all wrong with this like residual stress effects or negative adaptations to training? Because to me, it's like if I want to go back and sprint and I've just done this 16 week program, I got negative at, at least in the immediate phase after finishing i got negative adaptations to my athleticism yes absolutely and so it got me thinking like if i'm going to do like an extended block like the longer the block that we're building up this stress does that mean we need to like be more mindful about what's what we're doing from a volume perspective at for the same amount of time like following that block does that make sense you're sure yeah yeah um so yeah, you did like a more extreme version, right? Where you lifted, <laughs> yeah. you lifted hard and then you backed way off. And I think that can work. Um, yeah, I don't, I, I have some more past, like some, some cases in the past where I've done something like that. Again, now I don't, like, I don't see kids three times a week to do like, yes, we're going to strength train consistently for, you know, three months. Like, I don't really get that scenario anymore. Um yeah. So I think it can take different forms. I would say, um, I would say, yes, yeah, so you did more of a, a block, right? Like a yeah, block of training and then a block of sprinting or a block of lifting and a block of sprinting. Um, yeah, I, I wouldn't, <laughs> I, I would definitely, the, the strength training block, I would prefer to be a sprinting and a strength training. Block. <laughs> well, I learned, I learned that yeah. from that for sure. It was like, holy shit, this is wild. <laughs> yeah. And, and maybe a less extreme, uh, lifting block. Yeah. I mean, uh, dude, I kid you not. I gained like 20 pounds. I was, I was the right. most jacked I've ever been, but I couldn't move to <laughs> save my life. So. <laughs> yeah. Um, the other thing I was thinking about there is, so, you know, there's the, I think there's the, you have to make the distinction distinction between negative adaptations to strength training and just fatigue. Um, I think in your case, you probably had negative adaptations, right? Because you lifted a lot and because you weren't sprinting. So it's like, you know, you can assume your body sort of shifted in the strength direction, um, which again, some of those adaptations are good, right? Like, you know, uh, fiber recruitment, you know, neural drive, like, you know, things like that are good. Um, but, uh, but so in a different context, say you were sprinting and maybe you were only strength training twice a week in a more reasonable manner. Um, you know, maybe at the end of a a stretch like that, you don't really, you haven't really negatively adapted to strength training so much as you just have some fatigue because you're sprinting and lifting. Um, and so you have some fatigue just from training a lot, but that may not be, you know, I've transformed into a weightlifter. (laughs) Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And so in, in that context, let's say someone, yeah, let's say it's four or five days a week on the track, two days strength training. Um, maybe they do that for a few months. 
if they just have like fatigue, then maybe a couple weeks of training easier, they're going to, they're going to return to, you know, fast levels or, or even overshoot or super compensate to like a new level of speed within a couple weeks. Cause it's just a matter of getting some recovery. Um, that is different than I've strength trained four years, <laughs> you know, squatting three times a week, most weeks. Um, and so now it's, I have, maybe I have fatigue, you know, depending how hard you've trained, but you have negative adaptations because you've been doing this for so long. Um, or in your case, maybe cause you did it so hard, even yeah. if it was, I mean, four months isn't that long, but it's definitely no, but I mean like my background originally, I power lifted for a couple of years in my early twenties, oh, sure. like, like these things sure. added up, like, you know, yes. for sure. Uh, yes. that's, that's good. That's cool to know though. Yeah. Just knowing like there is this kind of middle ground approach for, today's athlete it's like today's youth athlete because i feel like like you said it's very it's consistency is very hard to maintain for these kids like yeah being with someone that knows what's going on and actually cares about their long-term development and well-being you know <laughs> yes yes and so yeah I implementing like a strength block and a sprint block is not generally going to be possible yeah um no no and days. i mean yeah. everything we do is concurrent here and like for yeah. me like the biggest thing i think of when you're talking about this is like are there any kids that I'm programming for right now that I'm leaning too much on one thing compared to something else? Cause sure. I try to, like to, for me, I would prefer to keep it as balanced as possible with kids that are less consistent. Yeah. Um, just so you kind of almost give them that full gamut of movement literacy or whatever you want to call it. So yes, yes. <laughs> I, I hear you. Um, yeah, definitely. I, I try to, like, I tell people, I was like, we just want them like consistently make small changes over time and they're going to add up. You know, I don't tell people like, Oh yeah, we're going to do a, a hard block and an easy block, stuff like that. Um, but yeah, I think it's important to distinguish between fatigue and between negative adaptations. That's a great point. Um, yeah. Cause yeah, I mean, you can have fatigue just from your track training, you know? Um, and then you just need to like do easier track training and that's, and that's the solution. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. The net negative adaptations are going to be more about that, that over time, are you overdoing strength training? Um, and, and, or also it's about, you know, the, the natural talent of the athlete. Maybe we have a naturally strong person who's not very fast. And so then for them, you know, negative adaptations might come, you know, what's negative for them might be like just squatting at all. Yeah. Yeah. They you look know, at a, I, they look at a bar and they're getting stronger. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. And, and, but they're also, you know, they're not able to shift in the, ex, in the, the explosive elastic direction because, you know, they're naturally over here and they, they need to, you know, like even getting stronger concurrently may not help them very much. They need to like sell out on the, uh, on speed. Um, yeah. I'm reminded of, he was one of my first athletes at acceleration, actually. Like the first summer I was there, um, seventh grader squatting 275 to parallel. Yeah. Good just, God. just natural strength. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Natural strength. And so, yeah, like I, I taught him how to squat cause I knew he was going to have to do it at school and I want him to do it well. Um, and then, yeah, a couple months in, it's like, yeah, he's doing 275 to parallel without, without struggling too much. And he, he probably weighed 150, 160 at the time. And, uh, and I'm just thinking like, this guy needs to run track and, and not lift weights, <laughs> you know, like and he's a seventh grader. Um, but it's, it's the, that's what he, that was the situation he was in. That was the context. Um, and so he ended up being like a really good high school linebacker. Um, you know, like a, a very good football player, but he never broke five and a 40, you know, and, and certainly he had plenty of strength to do. I mean, he ended up squatting like mid five hundreds, you know, in high school. That's crazy. Um, <laughs> yeah. and so it's like, yeah, there's so much potential there, but being, uh, having to, having to lift all year long for football, I don't think he really had the chance to maximize his speed. Uh, yeah. so yeah, it's all, it's, just depends so on that, that context and the different, the different combinations of things that you see in athletes. That's so interesting too. Cause like, obviously you said you don't have the stuff to measure, but like, I would imagine let's in a perfect world, let's say we did, like, I'm sure you could start to some extent again, like you don't want to bucket everyone, but bucketing people based on fiber type and then kind of seeing where the commonalities sure. are. And then all of a sudden we can make decisions from week one, instead of maybe you takes you a month to kind of figure this out with somebody or something right. like that, you know? Yeah. That's, uh, yeah, man, the future of training oh, could um, be crazy. <laughs> yeah. If you had, uh, yeah, if your initial testing had 
uh, fascicle length and uh, fast twitch or the, yeah, like fiber, fiber type um, data and um, angle of peak torque and uh, penation angle, right? Like that kid, that squatter, I mean, his quads were probably pulling, you know, like at, at this angle already <laughs> when he was in seventh grade, yeah, yeah. which is great for, for squatting a lot, but you know, we want to be actually less penated for speed. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, just, yeah. If we actually had that kind of data off the bat and then we could establish like what is ideal or what is, you know, what is, what does this look like in a, in elite sprinter? Um, Cause so fascicle length is a really interesting one, I think, because it's generally good to have longer fascicles because it's good for uh, contraction velocity. For sure. And, and then you also get, you get force, uh, you get like high force over a longer uh, range of motion, right? So you're basically like generally more capable. And, uh, and they've, they've done research where fascicle length is longer in sprinters and endurance runners. It's longer, like, you know, after after uh like explosive training or it's longer after strength training than than before mm-hmm. um like in an untrained subject so, right so it's like a generally good thing but the question is if we do full range of motion strength training uh over time do we get like too long a fascicle length you know to the point where uh where now we we lose speed or jumping ability because of it and like right now i don't think we have answers to that question yeah that's interesting yeah. yeah. I mean, for me, I've always just heard, yeah, just make the fascicle length longer and like whatever research shows the things that do that, just keep doing those things. So. Yeah. It's, it's a <laughs> yeah. little, it's a little oversimplified, right? Yeah. Um, I do find it interesting. I actually yeah. have a kid, you've been like kind of interesting topic. Like we have a kid here that is very strong. Um, we do a lot of like kinetic and kinematic testing on our guys. So like, yeah, yeah. so we have like a, a ton of data and like, as far as our amateur database goes, like, I think he's at the top of like pretty much every kinetic measurement can jump through the roof, but you get him on a drop jump. The kid steps down off a, what is it like a 12 or 18 inch box. Mm-hmm. And he he's immediately in a full, like his, his uh, impulse is through the roof because he's on the ground forever. He jumps 32 sure, inches yeah. on his drop jump, but he's on the ground for four, like four hours, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and it's interesting you mentioned all that stuff because it makes me think like he's done a ton, like before he came to us, he'd done a ton of full range, like bodybuilder style strength training. And he's a strong, mm-hmm. strong kid, but like he has no ability to like, you know, he can't create stiffness, you know? Right. And kind of, right. That kind of like what you're talking about there makes me think about that, like training to full range. Like what are we missing out on, on that other end of mm-hmm. things? Yeah. And so, you, yeah, it's take a, take a sprinter who's never lifted before, train him full range. It's going to do wonders for him, but take that kid and just keep training him full range. And it might be that the exact opposite of what he needs. Right. hundred um, yeah. percent. Depending, depending on the sport, like, is he in a speed sport or he, he like, plays football? Okay. Yeah. yeah. So he could, he could use some speed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 um, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. So do you, do you know what his max velocity is on what? Like a, like a flying sprint time. Oh, actually. So we don't have any of that for him. Uh, no, we do okay. not. I would say this. It's, it's funny. You can tell he's been trained a little bit by like, like some sort of sprint coach. Cause he does sure. some things like, I don't love all of them, but he does some things that like, lets me know he's coached. Yeah. And yeah. Um, I mean, he's not horrible. Anything plyometric based, like interacting with the ground with the feet outside of sprinting is, is a train wreck. It's crazy. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. And so, and, and so what's the solution to that? You know, uh, how do you, how do you manufacture that? I think your sort of your generic answer would be like, Oh, well, let's work on plyometrics um and 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 i think that's a legitimate answer mm-hmm. um i i also wonder about you know he should probably do a track season every year for sure um to get because that's that's your ultimate plyometric stimulus right there is you know sprint five thousand meters 100 percent. that'll do that'll do something <laughs> um <laughs> but then yeah also does he need to get away from strength you know is that is that part of the process maybe you know i don't i'm not gonna act like I know him that well, but, uh, but yeah, I think those are the kinds of questions we have to ask. Yeah. Um, and that, that's other, something, that's yeah. something we asked, like we asked ourselves here is like, like, yeah. I, I would say traditionally we're always like a, a, a facility that's going to implement some sort of high force, like training. Cause it's yeah. like who we are, but we, I would say as far as all the programming I've seen here in the past year, this is the program that has moved the farthest away from that, you know, sure. it's yeah. not like we all know it's not what he needs ultimately. Like, 
he could he could trap our deadlift like 500 pounds you know like we right. don't yeah we don't need yeah. to do that all the time anymore <laughs> so yeah um the other interesting thing that again i don't i don't think we have answers for really is if you do compare him to let's say uh let's say a, a sprinter who can go 11 meters per second right who's you know so really fast off the ground really stiff really elastic um yeah what would be the muscle architecture differences you know in the let's say even in the lower leg um what would be the fascial differences in the ankle uh in the it band um yeah those are those are answers i want you man. can you can t so this is why like we don't measure any of that stuff but you can literally by watching him you know it's not the same like it's right. yeah. so drastically different you're like goodness yes. gracious <laughs> uh-huh yeah and yeah, yeah and so what you know what are the differences with that sprinter and then how do we manufacture them yeah <laughs> and yeah. can we manufacture them to what yeah. degree can we manufacture them um yeah those are those are some answers that we are still still looking for i would say um but definitely i think sprinting and running a lot is you know <laughs> the the chief answer there um but then yeah possibly possibly you know strength training in a particular way or not strength training in a particular way, you yeah. know, is definitely another part of that answer. Yeah, for sure. Yep. For sure. Now we are running out of time. I try to keep these to an hour, but I have a bunch okay. more questions. We'll just try to speed round through like three or four of them. If we okay. get caught in the weeds, so be it. I'm fine. This has been great. So okay. um, um, uh, max velocity work for basketball players. Any yeah. thoughts on that? Do you do it? Oh, I do it. Yes. I figured you um, did. That's why I wanted to wanted to get your two cents on it. Yeah, I actually just posted a basketball player doing max velocity. That's, that's why I asked. So I was like, yeah. I think we need to talk about this. <laughs> um, yeah, so I I pretty much want all my athletes to sprint, assuming they're healthy enough to do it. Um really for the for the explosive slash elastic stimulus. Um I I think, I, I mean, I think a legitimate approach could be let's just do 80 to 90% so that we're accumulating our foot contacts, but we are not risking injury. We're not, um, you know, creating more fatigue than we need to by sprinting as fast as possible. If somebody took that approach with, you know, basketball, volleyball, I would have no, um, no issue with that. And I have done it myself even. Um, I like max velocity as a measure of, elasticity as an indicator of are we changing in this way um and so that's why i do actually like to test it um even even for a basketball player yeah even though it's not part of their sport and i'll even tell them look you're not going to do 10 meters per second on a basketball court um but if you have the ability to do this this is, I, I tell them it's like it's complementary training for athleticism right um or like for basketball uh, in the same way that strength training is complementary training, right? It's there's no barbells on the on the basketball court, but we know that getting stronger can help you with your basketball movements. In the same way, the elasticity that you develop from max velocity sprinting can help you on the basketball. Especially for court. these guys, yeah, yeah. So um, do you do you buy into the speed reserve concept with that too? Like being a little faster or being able to control speeds that are faster at a game level because you've worked on max velocity, or do you not really buy into that? Um. I don't, I don't, I guess I don't have a whole lot of rationale on whether or not to buy into it. Um, yeah. I don't, I don't know if there's a good, an easy way to like measure. Yeah. Cause <laughs> or, it's like, it's like the like, transfer there. You yeah. Know? Like, are you for, are you familiar with that though? Like I think Derek Hansen, somebody that talks about this a lot. Um, um, well, so I, I, when you, when you said it, I was thinking more about the conditioning side of things. I, I, so I'll send you, I'll send you a chart. I'll send you a chart of it, but essentially it's like, if we increase, let's say your max speed is 10 meters per second and we make it 11, all of a sudden now the sub max speeds that you can operate at in a, at a game go from maybe seven to eight or something like that, because we've increased the ceiling. That makes sense. Right. Yeah. That's so the like theory. a certain, yeah. A certain, <laughs> yeah. I mean, definitely. I agree. Like a certain effort level is going to produce a higher speed because you are faster now. Yeah. Um, I guess the way you said it first, it was sort of referring to, uh, or it's made it sound more like uh, there was some type of like coordinative benefit or, or something uh, of that I haven't nature. Really, I haven't really seen anything on that. More, more just along the lines of like, you can, you can 
sustain and run faster speeds in the game because now you're yes. at a higher max. Yeah. Speed. Things are just yeah. easier. Yeah. Yes. Definitely. I definitely, I agree with that. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Cool. 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 Yeah. Sorry. I'm terrible. Terribly worded. That's <laughs> <laughs> no, all good. <laughs> cool. Um, let's see a couple other ones here. They wanted to hit. Are you tracking any, what, what are you just getting times for sprinting or are you tracking anything like RSI? Um, like I've seen like a couple apps that will track RSI on like foot contacts and stuff or anything um, like that. I, I don't, I wouldn't say I track much else over time. I do look at, um, I'll look at contact time, uh, not to a super, um, precise degree. It's, you know, 240 frames per second video, mm-hmm. um, can, you know, it can tell you to the 10th or to the, to the hundredth at least. Um, and so then if someone goes from 0.13 to 0.11, like I'll, I'll know it. Um, I don't look at that all that often, but sometimes, um, I'll look at stride rate, uh, same way, just the, the video analysis. So, you know, I'll say like, okay, eight strides takes you exactly 2.00 seconds. Um, or, you know, on this rep, it took 190. Um, I, I think I use that more. It, it's not so much tracking over time as it is exploring technique. Um, you know, I'll, I'll say if somebody looks like they're overstriding, maybe I'll try to get them to go a little quicker in some way. For sure. So and it's then, more of like an acute, like instant feedback type thing. Right. And then, yeah. and, and I'll say, okay, you know, the last one was two zero zero and then have them run this sprint. And then if this it's 2.00 again, I'm like, okay, well, you may have thought you were going quicker, but you weren't. Um, <laughs> yeah. Or, okay, this one was, this one was quicker and it was also a faster time. So, okay, that was a good change. Um, versus, okay, it was quicker, but it was actually slower. So I don't really know if that was helpful or not. Um, or, or whatever, but yeah, it tends to be more like in that, that short-term coaching realm rather than, uh, yeah, like, you know, their, their stride rate got much quicker yeah. over time. Although I, I mean, it definitely does get quicker over time as they develop. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't like keep track of that a ton. Yeah. It's more about that kind of looking at stride rate, stride length, things like that. Um, Last one thoughts. Do you use any resisted running and, and what have you kind of found if you do? Uh, yeah. So we have a 1080 sprint. Uh, lucky you. I want one so yeah. badly. <laughs> um, so that's, uh, that's a, a piece of the puzzle for sure. Um, I would say, I mean, I, I use it more for measurements than for training. Although sometimes, um, oh, I, I'm all about training fast. So if people can sprint, then I'll, I, you know, I'll, I'll usually have them sprint and we'll even, yeah. we can even do overspeed training with a 1080. Yeah. Um, but let's say somebody, you know, had like, they have some soreness or they sprinted a bunch the day before, maybe we'll do some 10 yard heavy resistance sprints as like a workout. Um, but yeah, I use it more of a, as a test, uh, can see things like, peak force in the first step. Um, we can look at average power over the course of a sprint. Um, you can see limb asymmetries in there. Oh, really? Um, yeah, because it, you know, you get a peak for every stride. Oh, that's true. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, the, yeah, the yeah, force yeah. and the power graphs. Um, so you can see that. And then, uh, uh, probably the, the most critical point is actually post injury. Um, you can see if, a, if a, a, a leg is not doing what it used to do. Um, so I had a guy who, uh, I worked with him just a little bit, I think before his junior year of football, and then he tore his ACL and then he came back the next off season and, uh, put him on the 1080 sprint first time back. And he had one peak and then he had like noise <laughs> Whoa, for his other, for his, other leg, <laughs> for his, for his ACL leg. And I was like, okay, man, so asymmetry is common. It's normal. Like people have dominant legs and we don't need to, you know, they don't have to be even on this graph but you shouldn't have no peak for that leg. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and so he had, he had been through the therapy process and it had like been back to strength training and all this stuff prior to coming to see me. So I was like, this is still lacking in a sprint. So we need to, you know, we need to get stiffness back. We need to get bounce back in this leg. Um, and so we, you know, we like, let's start hopping on this foot every day. Let's start doing some, some high skips and, you know, different things like, like plyometric nature. Um, Cause yeah, you know, we don't want to have no power on that leg during a sprint. And, uh, and within, within a few weeks, he actually, like he was getting peaks on that leg again, like it, it worked. 
And I could see that because of the 1080 sprint. So how far out, um, how far away was he from the injury when you, when he first came back to you and you got that? That was April and he had done it in like October. I mean, it was like, he had been through, I think it was, yeah, it was like yeah October. Yeah. I think it was in October. So yeah, I guess that's like, like it was over six, it was six over months. six months, I think. Yeah. Yeah. It was, so it was like the tail end of, uh, tail end of the rehab Dude, that's, process. That's huge. Like the fact that you had that. And then like you, if you get a snapshot before a pre-injury, I mean, that right. massive. Yeah. That's right. Huge. And I had, I had tested him pre pre-injury, like there the previous go. off season. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, now that's obviously that's the 1080 sprint. That's not typical resistance printing. Yeah. Um, as a, as a training stimulus, I know there's research on it. This is why I ask you, I, I actually tend to shy. Like I, I, I know research is indicating that there's positives. I don't like the way it looks a lot of times though. Like just from my own eye. Yeah. I, I, I just from a theoretical standpoint, I think of it as like, okay, we're slowing down sprinting. So we're, we're not getting better explosive capabilities from this. Um, so it would have to be like a strength stimulus, <laughs> but as a, but as a strength stimulus, it's not much. Um, so then what, is it a technique stimulus? I mean, maybe if somebody doesn't know how to push, well, this is going to make them push, you know, if you got a bunch of weight holding you back. Um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not super high on it, honestly. Well, here's the other, here's the other interesting thing. And I just thought of this as you're talking about it, every study I've read where someone does a sled resisted, like block of training. Well, for one, it's literally like eight sessions in 12 weeks or something like that. Most of the time. Right. So it's like nothing first. Yes. Secondly, secondly, this is my other big thing is like when they finish, they always run two or three thirties. So it's like, sure. that's probably <laughs> where we're getting our stimulus from. Like, right. Yeah. That's the, like, you know, the, the training process is so multifactorial yeah. That to, to, yeah, be like, Oh yeah, we pushed a sled 10 yards a couple times, you know, and this, and now we got this re result in this, uh, this, this training group is like, yeah. Okay. But what was the actual cause, you know? Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting, man. I, I, well, the other thing is, did they do a, the heavy sled resistance and no other strength training? So that, that was the only strength. Yeah. And they I, had. I don't even know if they say you know? that in a lot of those studies, a lot of times, right. I, you don't, yeah. you don't get that type of insight. Yeah. So yeah, it's like, okay, well, if we're sprinting and we're squatting and deadlifting and lunging, does that just negate any benefit of the, the heavy resistance? Yeah. Sprinting, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and also like at the end of the day, I think a lot of these studies, like even acknowledge, like, the tasks are different when we're pulling something or when we're just running, right? The tasks yes. are different. So it's like, yes, there's all these studies. So there's no decrement to sprint performance that, but I'm like, okay, so if the task is different, then we're not really like practicing sprinting or working on velocity. We're just working to increase force. And to me, I, like, it seems like the end goal a lot of times is to increase force. And I'm like, well, there's a billion other factors that are going into our ability to successfully execute a sprint. And right. like, if force is the one we're chasing all the time, like I don't, that doesn't add up to me, you know? <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you, man. I definitely, uh, I don't assume that it works. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. yeah I, I, I use it here, you know, here and there and, and the, you know, the certain situation where I think an athlete, maybe they need to like not move as fast that day. You know, like I said, if they're sore or something, sure. or they sprinted yeah. a bunch the day before. Um, I know a lot of the kids like it. It's a good challenge, especially when they get the immediate feedback on the sprint, you know, like they want the like we have the numbers on the leaderboard, right? <laughs> like they want those numbers. That's sick. Yeah. So, so, it, you know, it can be good in some ways. It's definitely good for business. I can tell you that much <laughs> The you know, <laughs> the parents come in for the consultation and they see that graph going and whatever, you know, it's yeah, like, yeah, 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 yeah. That's um, awesome. So it's, it's good for a lot of ways, but yeah, it just like is resisted sprinting, like uh, a big key to speed development. I would, I would lean towards no. Yeah. Yeah. I'm kind of, kind of the same. Yeah. It's a tool in the box. Yeah, for sure. And you don't want to, yeah. yeah, you don't want to, like, I used to be very dismissive of things I didn't like. And now it's like, I still will even break him out now and again, cause I'm like, this kid just doesn't project at all. Like maybe I just want to yeah. have him push and, and half the time they get pulled back even further. So I'm like, <laughs> no, <laughs> yep. Yep. Absolutely. Hey, Daniel, thanks a lot, man. I really appreciate the time. Um, yeah, where can the people fun. find me like, or find, find me, find you. Um, uh, where can they find you on social media? Any, any programs or offerings you have uh, for people to purchase stuff like that? So uh, jump.science on Instagram. Um, and then actually my website now is actually just jump.science. Yeah. 
Love you it. just type that into a, a web browser. And uh, the, so the website, I do have a, a jump program on there. Um, it's, or it's, a, it's a whole collection of programs, actually. But uh, there's also like a whole bunch of free information on there. Um, so, yeah, feel free, anybody, to go, go read the articles, watch the videos, and uh, maybe learn some stuff. Or Dude, maybe you're... question me. Who knows? <laughs> Dude, your YouTube uh, was a source of a lot of fun for me a couple of years ago, looking at all the sprint stuff and everything there. So, cool. uh, yeah, I think you put out great content, and I really appreciate you coming on. It's been cool having you. So, Yep. Thanks, man. Hey, thank you.